All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Welcome back to Sacred Season. I'm Danielle Hitchin. And I'm Erin Hawley. Sacred Season is dedicated to coming alongside listeners with encouragement for whatever season you're in, but especially if you're parenting in the little years. Each episode is built around a season of the liturgical calendar. We believe the church calendar is a helpful way of discipling our hearts and our times, and that each season can lead us into a deeper relationship with God and a deeper understanding of ourselves. Sacred season has been on hiatus since March of 2020 when we, Aaron and Danielle, and also we, everyone in the world, unexpectedly found ourselves thrust into working from home while simultaneously homeschooling our kids. It's been a wild year and it's hard to believe we are just starting to sort out what it might look like to live in a post-pandemic world. This year has also brought significant changes to both of our personal lives. I, Danielle, became a homeschool mom by choice instead of pandemic. She's brave. (laughs) (laughs) We are actually in a homeschool hybrid situation, but I have been shocked to discover how much my children are able to learn from home when I actually have some control over the curriculum. And one of the best things to come out of 2020 is that my youngest, who is now two, has finally learned to sleep through the night. Hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also published an addition to the Baby Believer series, which is called We Believe in Alphabet Primer, and that helps our kids understand the fundamentals of the faith. And I launched a breath prayer project called Our Daily Breath, which you can find on Instagram, and I will link to that in the show notes, which you can find at sacredseasonpodcast.com. But if you're interested in deep breathing exercises or meditative prayer practices, I'd especially invite you to come and see what Our Daily Breath is all about. And our family also has a great many updates. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we welcomed a baby girl, Abigail Lynn, on November 9th. She's super cute. She's, she's wonderful. Uh, and the Lynn is after my mom, uh, which is very special uh, to me. And I don't know about the rest of you, but coming to the end of 2020, I was so excited to flip the page from December 31st, 2020 into January 1st, 2021. (laughs) And then uh, I think our nation and certainly my family was shocked uh, by ensuing events. And our country has just really undergone some hard things uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, as has our family. We've had uh, some difficult career moves uh, for myself and just uh, just a lot of upheaval uh, in our nation and family. And I just uh, am reminded of a talk I heard of Rick Warren's where he talks about how he used to believe that life was a season of valleys uh, followed by a season of mountaintops, but that as he aged, he realized it was more like railroad tracks. Uh, and that on the one hand, he might have incredible blessing in his life, uh, such as Abigail, uh, her wonderful smiles, she's starting to laugh and just is the, the joy of our lives. And then you might have some really hard things uh, going on at the same time. And I imagine that's true for many of you as we hopefully come out of this pandemic, uh, but with life that just looks a little different than when we went in. I think that's definitely true. Our family has certainly experienced a number of good, wonderful things that have happened this year, even in the midst of the general hardship of enduring pandemic life. So we're really excited to be back with you with Sacred Season. And instead of rebooting our podcast from the very beginning, we wanted to pick up where we left off. 
Our last recorded episode on the season of the church calendar was about Lent, and particularly about the spiritual disciplines that we pursue during Lent, which are fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Today's episode is going to be focused on a different part of Lent, which is the events of Holy Week. And while they are technically still in Lent, they feel very different from the season of Lent. Uh, Lent has a steadiness and a rhythm, and Holy Week feels really wild and jarring, and it moves us through a roller coaster of events in the final week of Jesus's life. Holy Week begins on Palm Sunday, which is one week before Easter, and it concludes on Holy Saturday. So on Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem, and we smile and wave palm branches and sing Hosanna and shout with joy. Um, a lot of churches do a procession on this day where you get to actually wave palm branches, and that's super fun. Um, and then there are some smaller traditions that are observed on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but often Holy Week is picked back up again on Thursday, which is known as Maundy Thursday. And this is the night that Jesus observed Passover with his disciples, and he washed their feet and instituted the Lord's Supper. And in preparing for this episode, I realized that I have no idea what the word Maundy, as in Maundy Thursday, means. So I looked it up. It's actually an Anglo-French word, which is derived from the Latin word mandatum, which means commandment. And it refers to Jesus's words to his disciples in the upper room, which are recorded in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so that you also may love one another. So after Maundy Thursday, um, we have Good Friday, which is the day that we remember Christ's crucifixion. And then we have Holy Saturday, which concludes Holy Week. And that's the day that we remember that Jesus was really dead in the tomb. Uh, it feels like hope is lost. We are quiet. It's dark. We grieve. And um, yeah, as I was researching for this episode, I was listening to an episode of the Word and Table podcast. Um, we'll link to that in our show notes as well. And they were talking about the church calendar. And I was actually surprised to learn that um, Christians didn't always remember or celebrate the events of Holy Week. These traditions actually began because Christians used to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Easter, and they wanted to see the places where Jesus walked and lived. And eventually it developed into this whole experience where pilgrims could reenact, so to speak, the events from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday at the actual places those things took place. So in spite of its slightly touristy roots, uh, Holy Week really encompasses a number of days uh, with special meaning to us as Christians. Um, and it's humbling and useful uh, as moms and as Christians to think about all of the events uh, that preceded Jesus's death. I think that the emotional texture of the week is incredibly helpful for us as we think about processing our emotions, having boundaries and grieving well. You know, Jesus's motions are on display in this final week, and I just love it. He has righteous anger in the temple over injustice and greed. He shows care of his beloved friends at the Passover meal. He is fearful and overwhelmed in the garden at Gethsemane. He has human neediness on the cross. He asks for a drink, and he, he asks for what he needs. And I feel like Jesus's utter humanity is there for us in all of its complexity during Holy Week. I really love that point, Danielle, and it's so helpful to me to remember as well uh, that the Bible tells us that Jesus has been tempted in every way uh, that we are. So he has experienced every emotion. Uh, as moms, it's so helpful to me to remember that he sat at the well in John 4 because he was tired. <laughs> he knows what it's like uh, to have a four-month-old baby with sleep regression. Um, he was flat-out exhausted. Um, he was exasperated and discouraged uh, by his followers who didn't believe. He was angry, um, as Danielle said, about the money changers uh, in the temple. He was abandoned by his closest friends uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was fearful in that same garden. Uh, the Bible tells us that he sweat drops of blood. 
So I was so curious about that, and I looked it up, and it's actually a medical condition. So we can believe that Jesus really did uh, sweat drops of blood. It's called hematridosis, and it's an extremely rare medical condition that's caused by extreme fear and distress. When a person suffers extreme mental anxiety, uh, such as Jesus must have felt in the garden, it can activate the sympathetic nervous system and our flight or fight response system to such a degree that humans actually bust their capillaries near the sweat glands, uh, causing this thing called blood sweat sweat. Jesus was so afraid that he sweated blood. He can relate to all of our fears as moms and as Christians. Certainly grateful that I have never experienced that kind of anxiety <laughs> yes, yes. or fear in my life. Um, but one of the one of the things I love about Jesus taking time to go and pray in the garden at Gethsemane, so it's a way for us to think about having boundaries and Jesus taking the time that he needed to take care of himself. You know, he took time away from his friends and his disciples, and he went to be with his father. And I think it's easy as moms to feel like we have to be on all the time, that we have to be available all the time, we have to be with the people who need us all the time. But people always needed Jesus, and he still took time to say, no, I need to be by myself. I need to spend time with my Lord. Um, And it's just a good reminder for us to take that time to be alone, go away in our room for a few minutes, take time to breathe and to pray. Um, And I I mean, I really appreciate that Jesus sets that example for us. Um, He also models a few other things for us throughout Holy Week. And one is that our emotions are a God-given gift. We were made to feel and to feel deeply. And the second thing he models for us is that God can handle our big emotions. Um, And both these things are incredibly important. You know, there are some Christians or some churches that have a habit of telling us how we feel about something shouldn't factor in to how we make a decision or how we think or how we act. But our feelings actually play a huge role in our faith and in our relationship with God. And this isn't to say that our emotions are always 100% correct or that we should always act on them, but they always tell us something about our internal state and we always need to attend to them. You know, how many of us have sometimes felt like God was just not there? You know, we know intellectually that that's false. God is always there. But feeling like he's not there is an important indicator of our headspace and our heart space. And this leads me to the second point, which is that God can handle those big emotions. If you feel like God isn't there, you should tell him. You know, I can remember a time when my youngest was about six months old, and it definitely felt like a wilderness season for me. Um, It felt like God was not present. And there were just things that kept happening that seemed like perfectly calibrated challenges to make me feel like I was just going to lose my mind. It was things like our air conditioning breaking in the hottest week of the summer at the same time that um, we had a minor problem in our car, which was just one more thing to get fixed. And the computer needed to be fixed, which as a work at home mom, if your computer doesn't work, like that is just crippling. (laughs) And Um, The baby wasn't sleeping and she was having lots of um, allergy problems and acid reflux and I was sorting all of that out. And then around the same time I was diagnosed with um, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease. And these things didn't all happen in one day. They happened probably about 10 days apart, but it was just enough where I was like, where are you, God? Like, please, please give me something here. Like, what am I supposed to be learning? What do I need to be doing? And it was good to process through those emotions and to find out that God was actually there with me in the midst of those moments, even where it felt like I, I was walking alone through things. God came alongside of me and there were blessings and there were care. 
and there was care given and um, I really saw the way that God provided for us in those seasons, which was wonderful. Um, but it was also, I mean, it was really cathartic for me to sometimes go and pray and ask, mm-hmm. like, what is going on here? And, you know, we have that kind of like going to God in distress modeled for us in the Psalms and in Jeremiah, and particularly in Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah is like literally conversing with God and practically yelling at him, why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You are to me like a deceptive brook or like a spring that fails. And I think that those lines are so, um, so relatable. As humans, we sometimes just don't know what God is doing or where he is working. Um, God, of course, answers Jeremiah and says, I'm right here. I am right here for you. Trust me. I am working out my plan. So, yeah, I just think it's a really wonderful way that we can see how Jesus comes to the Father and shares his deepest grief with him in in this final week of his life. I love that reminder that God can handle all of our emotions um, and that he loves for us to be authentic uh, with him uh, because he meets us uh, at that place of suffering. And when we think about suffering, and I know that a lot of this past year has felt like suffering for so many of us who have lost loved ones, who have been cut off from churches, uh, from family and from friends. It's interesting to note that Christians have historically had two different responses uh, to suffering. And theodicy uh, is one response, and this is the intellectual practice of reconciling our belief in God with the reality of suffering. And theodicy isn't bad. Uh, Scripture and theologians tell us that there are very good intellectual answers uh, to suffering, like the promise in Romans 8.28 that God is working all things, and that means all things, uh, to the good of those who love him. And we know that ultimately he will set all things right. But when we're struggling, it can feel like this intellectual head knowledge just isn't enough, at least for me. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the second response to suffering, which is called theophany. And theophany is this amazing word, which literally means when God shows up. And Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, tells us that the Israelites dealt uh, with suffering by using theophany. And if you think about the ancient Israelites, they dealt with infant mortality, they dealt with famine, they dealt with slavery. They had a really hard existence. And their question to God was not why God allowed suffering, but rather how do we get through this with God when God shows up in a theophany uh, in the context of community. So this shift in framework uh, has been so instrumental to me in just addressing different areas of suffering in my life and realizing that we may not always understand uh, why something happens, but that we can always be assured who is with us. And growing up, I grew up in a difficult household, as I've mentioned a little bit about. My dad was an alcoholic who also suffered from depression. And one consequence of that is I just didn't feel like I felt in fit in anywhere. I was always trying to be the best kid possible, the, the model kid, so that not even really that I would get praise, uh, just so that I would fit in. And one place, ironically, where I didn't fit in at all uh, was my grandmom's house. And my grandma's house was wonderful. Uh, The food was great. There was laughing. There was camaraderie. 
but everyone was just comfortable uh, being themselves um, except me. And so in order to fit in, uh, this sounds very sad, uh, but I would try to help out as much as possible. And one way of helping out when you're a seven or eight year old girl is being able to wash dishes. So before the dinner was even finished, I would run around, scurry around, uh, pick up dishes um, from everyone's plate and start to wash them. And I remember seeing my uncle lean back in his chair after dinner, just talking and laughing and wondering what it would be like just to be able to be that comfortable in my skin, that comfortable with my own family, just to enjoy the moment. Uh, but meanwhile, I was over at the sink, uh, frantically washing dishes. And later through a healing prayer service um, at our local church, um, I actually had a vision that changed that moment for me forever. And I was still there, I was a skinny little blonde girl. I was still frantically washing dishes uh, at the kitchen sink. And I can see it, it's a sort of a linoleum tile sink with the double sink, you're looking out on a little fruit garden. Um, and I was there washing dishes, but as I looked, I wasn't alone anymore. And that skinny little blonde girl uh, had been joined uh, by a boy. And we were splashing and just sort of playing in the bubbles uh, like kids do. As I looked and watched, I realized uh, that Jesus was there with me and that he had actually come to wash dishes with a little girl who felt really alone. And to me, that example of theophany, of when God shows up, changes everything. And again, we may not know why things happen. There'll be lots of questions uh, to be answered in heaven, but we can always be assured that God is with us, even if we don't necessarily see him at the time. That's such a beautiful story. And I think it's a great reminder of how we should help our kids approach their big emotions. You know, little kids feel big things and it's good to help them understand that even when they're feeling negative emotions, even when they're feeling scared or sad or lonely, God is there with them in those moments. And, you know, one of our jobs as parents is not to control our kids' feelings, but to help our kids name and process those feelings. And it's so much easier, I think, to manage something that's overwhelming when you know what it is. Sometimes dealing with our kids' emotions can be incredibly challenging. Sometimes they're having a flailing fit because you gave them the wrong pacifier and it's utterly exasperating. Um, and other times they're so excited that, you know, they're like literally bouncing off the walls and driving you bonkers. But as we model for them that we can handle those big emotions, as we sit in those emotions with them and accept their emotions and help them process through them, we also model the ways that God can handle those emotions and the ways that God sits with them in those processes. And when our children feel safe to have their emotions, they are so much better able to process and uh, learn to cope with those big feelings. I love that point, Danielle. And to go back again to Walter Brueggemann, one thing he says is that we, as we process our emotions, and especially as we experience authentic emotions and share them uh, with God, as did Jeremiah, that that's actually an act of faithfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, it acknowledges the reality uh, that we have pain and sorrow and suffering in our life, but it takes that pain and suffering to God as an act of faithfulness, trusting in a God who cares and who enters into the fray on our behalf. That's such a great way of thinking about it. Um, you know, I've been just thinking this week how it is okay to say that um, both God is good and I'm sad. Those things are realities that can exist simultaneously. 
Um, I mean, one of the biggest emotions that we are ever going to process is grief. And I think that there's such a wonderful model for grieving laid out for us by the events of Holy Week. Um, if we understand the cycle of grief, we know that we just can't skip ahead to the resurrection. Jesus was really crucified and he was really dead and he was really laid in a tomb. And I imagine that those hours between Friday evening and Sunday morning were some of the worst hours of the disciples' uh, lives. I mean, I can't imagine how horrible it must have been to see their Savior crucified and really dead in the tomb. And um, I think that shows us that it's okay to have periods in our life where we can honestly acknowledge the reality of pain. Like we have all experienced grief in the past year, whether it's a deep grief over loss of a loved one or the more general grief of our pre-pandemic lives, we've all experienced loss. And, um, you know, pretty recently I experienced the loss of a miscarriage. And I know that one in five pregnancies mm -hmm. ends in miscarriage and I'm not the only mom to have felt this, but it's been, um, an interesting, you know, couple of weeks as I've sought to understand how to process this well and to know that it's okay to sit and be sad about it. I don't have to just go, okay, well, I'm going to see the baby in heaven one day. It's all good. Like, no, there are actual sad, painful realities to losing a baby on this side of heaven. And it's okay to be sad about that and to grieve that and to take time to process and be gentle and to bring that to the Lord and say, I don't know why you did this but it's okay because your plan is better than my plan. You are still good and I am still sad. And that that is okay. We can be in this together. Um, and it's, yeah, I just think it's great to have the model of Holy Week to know that Jesus was really dead in the tomb on Holy Saturday and to experience Holy Saturdays in our life. I'm really happy that I don't have to skip directly to the resurrection um, in the midst of a season of loss and pain. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Danielle. And I remember seeing a post um, on our local mom's Facebook group a while back, um, but it uh, had people list the number of children that they had. Um, and there were so many angels. And I am so appreciative that this is something we can talk about today. That in the past, um, I think women have felt um, just inhibited from discussing this. And I'm glad that we can walk alongside one another um, in our pain and in part of that context of community uh, that the Israelites did um, to process process that. It also brings to mind um, Nicholas Wolterstorff. We will also link uh, to his book in the notes. Um, but he lost his son in the twenty in his twenties uh, to a climbing accident. Um, and you know, immensely powerful theologian, uh, immensely faithful man. And yet he said something very similar to Danielle. He said the verses that I thought would comfort me when I lost my son didn't. Um, and as Danielle said, she was totally confident, and he's totally confident that uh, they will see their children in heaven. Um, but he still grieved the present day loss and not being able to see his son, not being able to hear his voice. And it's okay, as Danielle said, to want our loved ones here uh, and now. Um, and that desire for relationship is not itself sinful. If we look at Corinthians 15, 24, it tells us the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. And it's clear from that verse and the Bible as a whole that death was never God's design, that it is a consequence of the fall, and that our bodies don't really understand how to grapple with the separation that they were never supposed to experience. So what, what do we do uh, with this loss and death, knowing it was not part of God's original plan or design? And there's no easy answer. But again, for me, if I look to the practices of the ancient Israelites, 
they can point me in the right direction. It's this practice of lament. And now when I think of lament, uh, I can think of my six-year-old's tantrums. It's, it's a, <laughs> a full-on meltdown. Um, and it's okay. God can handle all of our authentic emotions as we've discussed. And it's even okay to have a full-on meltdown uh, with God, to trust Him uh, with those emotions. But a true practice of lament not only tells God how we feel, but includes so much more. It doesn't leave us in the place of tantrum, but moves us to a place of praise. It helps us to focus our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, and it moves us to hope. I think of the story of the author of It Is Well With My Soul. In this familiar hymn, we sing that when peace like a river attendeth my way, and this is a key line, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Now, some of you may know this, but the author's sorrows really did like sea billows roll. It's a tragic story of Horatio Spafford. He was a lawyer and real estate developer in Chicago. He lost his four-year-old son and then lost all of his investments in the great Chicago fire. He sent his wife and his four daughters uh, to England uh, to go to sort of a revival of sorts and had intended to go with them on the ship but was delayed for business. On the way, their ship was struck by another vessel and his four daughters perished. His wife telegrammed once she got to England, saved alone, what shall I do? Well, Horatio went as quickly as he could to join his wife. Uh, he had to take a ship, of course, and the captain pointed out the spot of the shipwreck where his four daughters had drowned. It was at this place on the ocean where Horatio Spafford had the faith to write, It is well with my soul. He says, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I confess, I rebel a little bit <laughs> at this, to, to hear his story, uh, all of the pain that it encompasses, to lose five children in the span of months would be absolutely heartbreaking. But his song, his praise really aligns with the ways the Israelites approach suffering. Psalm 13 is a typical psalm of lament. And in the first stage of the psalm, the psalmist brings his pain or her pain and hardship and doubt to God authentically. As Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph? But then notice, he doesn't stop there. He goes on to petition the Lord in faithfulness, expecting God to hear and answer the psalmist says, look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And finally, in the third stage of lament, the psalmist relinquishes his pain and sorrow to God and turns it to praise. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love, even in the midst of all the hardship that Horatio Spafford underwent, he said, it is well. He trusted in God's unfailing love. And as the psalmist says in verse six, Psalm 13, six, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You know, sometimes it seems like people think Christians use their Christianity as a way of getting out of hard things or of not approaching the world head on or thinking about the world as it really is. But the Bible is full of 
hardship and sorrow and lament. And the Bible, I think, really shows us what it means to have the full human experience, what it means to grieve deeply, to be sorrowful, to experience sadness. Um, And Holy Week is just a a quick microcosm of that that really models for us how we grieve well. And the wonderful thing about scripture and the examples of um, faith of the people who have come before us is that we know and can see that God goes with us, even in those hard things, that we should expect hard things to happen and that God will provide for us in those. So if you are walking through a season of hardship or a season of grief, we would just encourage you to grieve well, to cling to the scriptures, to cling to the examples that we are given in the Psalms and in Jeremiah and in Horatio Spafford and in Holy Week and the way that um, Christ and the disciples approach that final week of his life. We are going to end um, this episode in a bit of silence and reflection. We're not going to do any readings because it is traditional to end before Easter in silence and quiet. Um, But we do pray that you have a blessed Holy Week and it's a time that you meet with God and find him there in the midst of whatever pain you are experiencing.